I titled this sermon this week, Attentiveness in the Right Place. Do we have our attentiveness, attentiveness in the right place or on the right things or in the right area? Maybe the title could have been a little different, but I think you'll see and understand why I titled it what I did, Attentiveness in the Right Place. We're going to continue our journey through Luke. We're in Luke chapter 21. As I know, we do not cover the entire chapter, but parts of the chapter. Um, this morning, I'm going to begin with just the very first six verses. I will have some more from Luke 21 as we get into the message a little further. So Luke 21, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the day will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. May God add his blessings to the hearing and the reading of his holy word. And as I have done the last several Sabbaths that we were here, I want to ask that someone would volunteer to pray before I begin. Lord our God, you are so good to us. You've given us your word. Now beyond the sacred page, we seek thee, Lord. Our spirits pant for thee, O living word. Speak through our pastor in this way that we will know it is from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, as we was having our discussion in Sabbath school, I was kind of chuckling inside some of the challenging questions and the challenging comments. And... Our Sabbath school leader said, you know, someone will say, yes, I believe that sometimes God calls you to give all. But he's not really calling me for that. <laughs> this poor widow gave all. You know, as I began preparing this message, uh, if we was on vacation, I did try to take a vacation. We had one rainy afternoon. I, I began and I was doing a little bit of research, a little bit of studying and and I wasn't even going to include the first four verses. I was going to leave them out. I was going to begin with verse 5 where they spoke of the temple and the magnificent temple and all these things. And that was going to be the, the, the main focus of the sermon. But I think the Spirit had a different idea because He revealed to me that I'd be leaving out one of the most important parts of chapter 21. A very important part. You know, what was Jesus doing in the temple? Often, Jesus was found in the temple Amen. doing what? Teaching. Teaching the people. Teaching them about the kingdom of God. Teaching them, ministering to them, healing the sick. Just always observing the people. Being, ministering to them, being attentive to the people. And this day, Jesus was attentive to the people putting their gifts into the treasury. He was observing them, watching what they were putting into the temple treasury. Now, don't fear, don't worry, because I pay no attention to what anybody puts in the offering. I have no idea what anybody gives or if you give, and I don't want to know. But Jesus was using that to teach us, teach us how we should give, teach us where our hearts should be. You know, there, there's 
I'm gonna, there's going to be more of this about than, than just giving, but I want to focus on the giving part that Jesus is teaching here for a little bit. When it comes to our giving, God sees more than the portion that we give. Amen. You know, I know that many of us, we reason in our minds or in our hearts, well, I'm going to give 10%. That's a common tithe that people give. Or I'll give 5%. But we, look, we just sit down and we say, okay, well, I make this much and I will give this much. So we look at a portion that we give. Well, this poor widow put in two mites. How much are two mites, you might ask? Kids, do you know how much two mites is? Well, the NIV interprets it as two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. The smallest Greek copper coin in that day was called the lepta. The Roman copper coin, the smallest one they had, was called the quadrants. But was it one of these she put in? Most likely. But one thing holds true, it was the smallest coin available in that day. Two of the smallest coins available in that day is what she put in the offering. My friends, here's the most amazing part of this that I feel is the most amazing part. is Jesus said that she put in, what she put in, two little mites, was greater in proportion than all the other donations combined. Those two little mites... She put in more than anybody else there. Why? Because God not only sees the portion we give, He sees the proportion that we give. What do I mean by that? Proportion is the part in comparison to the whole. Is it not? Proportion is the part in comparison to the whole. He sees how much we have left. So if we reason in our mind, well, I'm going to give 5%. I think that's very generous. Well, then he knows that we've got 95% left for us. And we're giving him immediately 5%, right? The others were giving out of their abundance. You know, it could be that... Let's just use today's terms of money because it's easier. It could be that somebody walked over here and put $1,000 in the treasury. Well, what a generous gift. Boy, the pastor would love to see that, right? We can buy a, put that back for a new piano. Or buy new curtains or a new carpet. You know, the pastor might look at that and say, yeah, we could work on that new roof. When we see the abundance they put in, oh, they put in such a, a large amount of money. But they had thousands left over. You see what I mean? They could have put a thousand, they could have put ten thousand in, but they had thousands and thousands left over. God seeing the proportion, Jesus seeing the proportion, what they had left over. They had plenty left for themselves and what they needed. This poor widow, on the other hand, it said, she put in all the livelihood that she had. Let that sink. Nothing left for her. Nothing left for her. She put in every bit that she had. Friends, you know, you've read the Scriptures, you know that a widow, if she was up in, in years, advanced in years, She'd had little to provide for herself. She had no job. She had to go out and beg and plead or maybe a family member would take care of her. If not, she was destitute. Hardly anything at all to live on. But she gave all that she had. God recognized her generosity. Jesus recognized her faith 
that she was going to trust in God to provide for her needs, to take care of her. She, he knew the condition of her heart. She put God's treasury above her own needs. God's will above her own will. Winston Churchill once said, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Amen. We do. We, we, we get our jobs. We earn a paycheck. We make a living at our occupation or careers that we have. But we truly make a life by what we give to others, what we do for others, what we do for God. Is how we make a life. Charles Spurgeon and his wife, and this story was found in the Chaplain magazine, they were labeled as some of their neighbors and family as being greedy and grasping for money. And how did they get this tag attached to them? Well, they had chickens. They raised chickens. And those chickens laid eggs. But they would never give those eggs away. They always charged for the eggs. Even family members would come and say, we need some eggs. Well, you can have some eggs as long as you pay for them. So they thought they were greedy. Even family members thought they were greedy. The only way they could get eggs is if you paid for them. We're not going to give any of them away. And they accepted that criticism and they did not defend themselves. Only after Mrs. Spurgeon died did the full story come out. All the profits, every last cent, every last mite from the sale of the eggs went to support Two elderly women. Two elderly widows, that is. Like the one found in our story. They were unwilling to let the left hand know what the right hand was doing. They didn't want others to know what they were doing. They didn't want to bring attention to themselves for their generosity, actually. And was labeled as being greedy and grasping. Taking care of the widows. Our passage does not tell us that Jesus had any kind of conversation with this poor widow at all. Just that He notices her. He was attentive to the people around Him. He saw what was going on. You know, in our journey through Luke, we see so many, of the, so many examples of Jesus' attentiveness to the people around Him. From the many healings that He performed. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. He healed her. Many were sick with leprosy. He touched them and healed them. Was not afraid to touch them. Paralyzed. Was given her legs back to be able to walk. He even was attentive to a mother that was mourning the loss of her son. Interrupted that funeral and brought her son back to life. He was even attentive to those that the religious leaders thought were undesirables. Like the tax collectors and her sinful friends. He would go and have dinner with them. He, was inter he interacted with a man that was possessed by a legion of demons. He even interacted with Samaritans, those despised Samaritans. He was attentive to their spiritual needs. Amen. He was attentive to their physical needs. He was attentive to people. Friends, that's the most important thing. He was attentive to people. What brought this to my attention was, what did the others see? Jesus is attentive to the people. He's recognizing what they're doing. But what did they see in contrast to what Jesus saw? While He's noticing the woman and those putting their offering in, they noticed the magnificence of the temple. How it was beautifully adorned with stones and many donations, right? You know, without a doubt, 
the temple was a beautiful structure to behold. No doubt about it. The temple in Jesus' day was not Solomon's temple. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians in the 7th century B.C. This temple was built by Ezra, but also it was later expanded and made more magnificent by Herod. King Herod more than doubled the Temple Mount area, increased it to about 36 acres, 150,000 square meters. Herod's rebuilding work started in 19 B.C. and was only com it was completed in A.D. 63, only eight years, or seven years, my math, before it was destroyed. The temple was not just big. It was beautiful. The Jewish historian Josephus said that the temple was covered outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on it, it would be blinding. You could barely, hardly look at it. It was so blinding because of all the gold. And where there was no gold, there was blocks of pure white marble that travelers would look and think it was snow because it was such a pure white. You know, whenever we went to Italy, however many years back that was, five years ago, four years ago, whatever it was, the structure over there was amazing. You look at some of the architecture of some of the buildings. These, some of these buildings are thousands of years old. You know, look at the, the Roman Colosseum. Even in its half destruct, you know, it's halfway destroyed, it's still an amazing thing to look at. And you look at it and think about what it was like when, before it was destroyed by the earthquake. You look at some of the other buildings over there, it is it's amazing to look at. Man can build some magnificent looking structures. But you know, as magnificent as the temple was, Jesus is greater. Matthew 12, 6 says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Amen. There is one greater than the temple, and that one is Jesus Christ. He is greater than any structure, any building that man could build. Whether it, be, it could be covered with gold inside and out, top to bottom, but Jesus is greater. As we sang, He is more precious than gold. More valuable than gold. He is greater. What are you attentive to? Are you attentive to things? Structures? Material things? Or are you attentive to people? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer. What are you attentive to? I must confess that my natural tendency is to notice structural things. I think I've shared before, my wife could get her hair cut and I might not notice. It might be a week later that I notice. My son-in-law walk in the door the same day and say, oh, so you got your hair cut. I'm like, thanks. You really helped me out here, making me look bad. Lord's working on that. He's trying to help me. But I'll notice structural things. You know, I can, if I pull up to a building, if, I, if there's a, a banister that's crooked or something like that, I'll pick it out like right now. I thought I was good with structural things. Where did the landing go? There he's hiding. As I was going out 28 this morning, just past the hunt club, there used to be an old barn and an old house there. Who is gone? The red rinsel, red rinsel brick house and a little old barn set beside it just past the hunt club, it's gone. On, it's there on the right, going out. 
So we was coming back through. I said, Landon, I said, there used to be a barn here. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There used to be a house and a barn. I said, when did they tear that down? He goes, like five months ago. <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe it took me that long to figure it out or to see it. So maybe I'm not as attentive to structural things as I used to be, right? You know, if I come home, there's a dent in the car. I'm going to see it right away. I do need to learn to be more attentive to people. You know, while we was on vacation, and Karen's a people watcher. She's good at observing people and noticing things. Well, we were down on the beach. We saw this family and a young girl, and Karen right away looked at her, and this girl, let's say, kind of had a hitch in her giddy-up with her walk. And Karen says, I believe she has cerebral palsy. Well, I don't know if it was the next day or the following day that we were up at the pool, and we had opportunity to talk with this family. Well, talk to the mom and the dad, anyway, not the, the kids. So we learned that they had three children, a 15-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 6-year-old. Well, the 10-year-old is the one that had cerebral palsy, has cerebral palsy. And so her dad got to telling us her story. When she was 6, I believe it was, or 4. When she was 4 or 6 years old, one or the other, they took her to Cleveland to a doctor out there that did a surgery on her. But I noticed, as soon as he began to tell us this story about his young daughter, his 10-year-old daughter, I could sense the emotion in his heart. I could just, it almost brought him to tears. Karen didn't notice that, but I did. So see, I'm getting better. It almost brought him to tears as he began to tell the story of his young daughter. She was born with cerebral palsy, and at the age of either four or six, they find this doctor in Cleveland that would operate on their spine. He said that they actually open up her spine and they have things connected to the brain and to the legs and every nerve that is not active, that is not functioning, they would snip that nerve. And they just went through that process of very long surgery, close her back up, and he said that they will operate, this doctor will operate on people up to 50 years old. But he said... After months of intense physical therapy, she went from wheelchair, then to crutches, to now no crutches. Amen. This girl was out there walking around that pool, and in the water, she was having a blast. This girl was just like a little fish out there in the water. I mean, spent hours in that pool. Had, and he just like, he went from the emotion at the end, at the beginning, to an emotion at the end that was all joy. Because he's like, this doctor gave her a life, gave her life back to her. She's not confined to a wheelchair. She's up, he said, and her mind's good. Everything works good. She just has a little hitch in her giddy up there. And, huh? and she plays on a basketball team. So I was attentive to this guy's emotions, to things that he was sharing. Are we attentive to people? Are we hearing what they're saying? Are we listening to people? You know how important that is that we just take time to listen to people sometimes? Sometimes just to keep our mouth shut and listen and notice the joy or notice the hurt or notice what they need. Notice their spiritual needs. Are we attentive to their spiritual needs? That's the most important thing, to be attentive to their spiritual needs. My friends, it's not about the things of this world. It's not about the buildings. It's not about the cars. It's not about any of those things. It's about the people. 
It's about relationship. That is the most important thing. Relationship. Our relationship with God, but secondly, our relationship to others. Amen. To our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our family. Are we attentive to people? Luke 21.6 said, after Jesus noticed them putting their offering in, after some spoke of the magnificent temple, Jesus said, These things which you see, speaking of the temple, the day will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So now I want to read some more from Luke 21, verse 7 through 18. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what will be, or what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. <clears throat> but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilence. Friends, are we seeing that today? Yes, we are. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and, you will, be, and will persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prison. You will be brought before the kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will be lost. Glory to God. Not a hair of your head will be lost. Not one. We're faithful to Him. You know, by the time Luke finished this writing, writing these verses, the destruction of the temple would already happen. Because this writing wasn't finished until 85 A.D., 15 years after the destruction of the temple. So it's a reflection on the destruction of the temple more than a prediction. But it shows the impermanence of human achievements, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. That these things will fall. They'll be destroyed. This temple will be destroyed. These houses we build, it'll all be destroyed. What's going to be left? Right? What's going to be left? Relationships, people. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There's going to be commotions. There's going to be earthquakes. Kingdom against kingdom. Fearful sights. Pestilence. That's a lot of things to be concerned about, isn't it? A whole lot of things to be concerned about. You know, disaster strikes. When disaster strikes or attacks happen, you know, oftentimes people are quick to say, point blame. You know, on September the 13th, 2001, on an appearance on the 700 Club, Reverend Jerry Farwell blamed the 9-11 attacks on a certain group and organizations that he characterized as promoting the alternative lifestyle. Austrian priest Reverend Gerhard Wagner wrote in 2005, uh, in a 2005 newsletter that Hurricane Katrina was a result of indescribable immoral conditions in New Orleans. 
So they're always quick to point out the blame. But Jesus said in His day, these things are going to happen. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be wars. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be famine. All these things are going to be happening. But the end is not immediate. It won't happen right away. But what should we do then? What should we do as followers? Take His advice. Take His words of caution. He said, do not be deceived. My friends, how are we going to not be deceived? By knowing this Word and trusting in Him. By not going after them. When the false Christ comes, do not go after Him. When the earthquakes come and the famine comes, do not be terrified, He says. But put our trust in God and in Him alone. Every age has its own false prophets. Every age has had their false Christ. I think one time I had a sermon I had a list of all these different false Christs in different years. Every age, every generation has had them. We have them in our age. We've had natural catastrophes. They had natural catastrophes. It's going to happen. I want to look to Matthew because I always turn to Matthew. I love his rendition about the end. And it tells about Jesus' return. Matthew, 20, Matthew 24, I was looking at my 26th verse, 24, 26 through 28. And it's speaking of when Christ returns. He says, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, He is in the desert, do not go out. So if someone says to you, Come quickly, come look, Jesus is in the desert, do not go. Stay where you are, do not go. Or if they say, look, He is in the inner room. Do not believe it. If they say, Jesus is here, come see Him, He's in this building. Do not believe it. It's what He's saying. This is printed in red. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That is really a strange imagery used here. Where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered to it. My friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, ask Him into your heart, you believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when He returns, no one will have to tell you. If you are His, no one is going to have to tell you. That's what He said. Do not believe it. Do not go out. Because as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, you will know. You will recognize His voice. You will know that it is Him. No one is going to have to tell you that day that He returns. Because if you are His, you are going to know. Amen. Do not be deceived. Many false Christs will come. Do not be deceived. Do not believe them. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, you are going to know it, if it when He does come back. No one's going to have to tell you. I'm going to go back to the giving and the things of the world. I think Paul understood and had his priorities in, in order. In Philippians 3, 7 through 9, it says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. My friends, the day is coming. I'm not going to stand up here and say that it could be a month or it could be a year. He knows the day nor the hour. He is coming. But the main thing that we need to do is not be deceived that we wait for His coming, but not just sit around and wait. Make sure that we are attentive to His plans and His purpose and His will for our lives. And His purpose is people, friends. His purpose is people. Not things, not the structures, not the buildings, nothing to this world, but His attention, His attentiveness is on people, and that is, if we are His, that is where our attentiveness needs to be, on the people of the world, and especially those that are lost and do not know Him. That when He does return, when that trumpet sounds and He comes back in His clouds, that there will be those that are going to meet Him and, and, and welcome Him because we have witnessed for Him, told them that he is, it is His righteousness, not ours. By His righteousness we are saved. It is a great mystery. We don't understand why. But it is a great mystery that God became one of us, took our sins upon Himself, that when He does return, we can go home to be with Him, that we can be reconciled to Him. We must believe it by faith. Receive Him and believe it by faith. Amen?